you're listening to a Big MX Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Arma Energy. Presented by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Bill's Pipes, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting, Rhino Power Sports Supplements, Roy Borton Suspension, Watts Perfections, and Golden Tire. Simply the best, motocross and supercross news from around the globe. And now, here's your host, Brad Gephardt. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Show, brought to you by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Just One Helmets, and X-Brand Goggles. I am your host, as usual, but with us on the line, we got Greg Schnell out of Rancho Cucamonga, California. He now resides in Texas. Greg, how's it going? It's going good, man. Um, living out here in West Texas, uh, and I'm you know excited to be on the show with you. I appreciate your time, and, and uh, you know everything's going well. Excellent. Well, uh, before we get too much into your career, uh, let's talk a little bit about your new career. I understand uh, you're doing some long-haul drug, truck driving down in Texas. I am. Uh, I moved to West Texas, uh, particularly the oil field uh, part of Texas uh, about three years ago. Um, came out here. Uh, it was At that time, it was, it was booming very, very well. Um, still is booming a little bit. Oil prices have dropped, but I do drive a truck. Um, it's a big difference. A uh, big change for me, um, you know, for Moto, obviously. But, uh, you know, I'm enjoying it. Um, I always like new challenges. Um, so this is this this is a good thing for me. All right, perfect. Well, that that's excellent. We uh, look look. F- uh, I'm glad to see that you're enjoying your new occupation, and uh, it, this it's got to be an eventful occupation as well. Yeah, it is. You know. Um, uh, learning, I like to learn new things. Like I said, I, I like new challenges. Um, moving out here, uh, you know, I'm from Southern California, Rancho Cucamonga, um, you know, and and it it was a big big change for me for sure. Uh, it's really slow paced out here compared to that. Um, I guess everywhere would be really, but um, it took me a little bit to adjust, a little time to adjust to uh, the slower paced lifestyle and smaller town atmosphere, which I liked and I probably needed. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, now that I'm adapted to it, uh, I really enjoy myself and pretty much all I do now is work and, um, been here for about three years now. So, um, I'm not really sure how long I'll be here, but, um, I'm enjoying my time here now. Well, that's excellent. And, uh, as you mentioned, you, you started this all in Rancho Cucamonga, uh, and like being born and bred into a, uh, uh, motocross hotbed like California and coming from a, a town like that, uh, not surprised why Art Ekman uh, would uh, take a chance to uh, say the name of your town every single time uh, that you were mentioned, especially uh, during those Supercross broadcasts. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, he, he did like saying the word Rancho Cucamonga, and even to this day when people ask me where I'm from, um, and I mentioned that they're like Rancho Cucamonga, and they kind of laugh. At it me. sounds like a resort. I, I it sounds like uh, Rancho Relaxo from The Simpsons or something along those lines. Something, something, you know. And, and you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie Friday or, or Next Friday, whatever it is. Supposedly filmed the movie in Rancho Cucamonga, and, and that's kind of what made it famous. Uh, anyways. Uh, part of what made it famous was uh, a couple of really fast motocross racers coming came out of it. Uh, not only yourself, but uh, 
Eric Schnell, uh, and the, the two of you guys uh, grew up right in the heart of California where uh, it's crawling with motocross pros. Uh, you guys headed off to uh, Loretta Lynn's for a little bit. Uh, he won a championship. He came runner-up in one of them. Uh, what was it like growing up in uh, basically the heartbeat of motocross? Well, growing up in Southern California, uh, you know, the mecca of motocross. Um, weather's always nice, perfect. Um, you know, when I was growing up uh, in Southern California, the, you go to the races and you have so many, so many moto guys, you know, um, slightly different than it is today. Um, we we just enjoyed ourselves uh, a little bit, uh, and sometimes maybe a little too much, actually, uh, when we were younger. Um, but, you know, the, the atmosphere in Southern California um, it was just amazing, you know. I'm I'm so appreciative to, to grow up there and ride moto, and uh, my parents getting me involved and me and my brother involved in moto. Uh, very satisfying, uh, fun, as you know, um, all the above. Uh, Southern California, there's so many. I mean, that's where all the I would say all, but most of uh, moto companies are, and um, just a, it's just a good place to grow up, riding moto, and. Uh, so many fun times, man. I can't even tell you how much fun that not only have I had my brother and, you know, friends and family, everybody. So, um, yeah, the Mecca motocross for sure. Uh, absolutely. Well, now you've got your, your Paris Raceway, which was still around back then, but you have Milestone now and all these tracks that are basically open seven days a week or at least uh, the bulk of the week. Uh, what kind of practice tracks did you have at your disposal uh, coming up through the ranks? I'm sure uh, like you turned pro in 95. There must have been a lot of practices and a lot of uh, motos ran uh, both day and night uh, by yourself uh, throughout the late 80s, early 90s. Well, in the I actually turned pro... In ninety ninety four, um, okay, yeah, in ninety four, right. and when you know the mid nineties to late nineties, uh, more so mid nineties, it was a little bit different. Um, you know, we did have Paris. I loved going to Paris. Uh, there used to be uh, the Goat Breaker Invitational. Uh, it was a preseason Supercross race that was very very fun to race, um, and you would get guys like. You know, all the top guys, Jeremy McGrath, you get, you know, Steve Lanson, the Jeff Emig, uh, I mean, you name it. They were there, Ryan Hughes and Dan Huffman. It, it was just a fun period in moto. Um, and and it was it's kind of crazy because nowadays there really isn't anything like that. Um, and back then as well, you, you would go to Anaheim or San Diego and race on a Saturday night, and then you go race a GFI race or – a Golden State or whatever it would be the next day, and you'd see, you know, all these fast guys out there that just raced the night before, um, which is really really cool. Nowadays, you don't get that. I, you know, I assume just because of the the money that they make, and uh, you know, they don't want to get hurt and all that stuff. It's a little bit more technical than it used to be for sure. Yeah, it seems like you guys got a lot more gate drops back then, both as pros and amateur riders. I guess they probably still have a lot of like uh, Wednesday night races and stuff like that. But uh, it seems like back then, if you wanted to race uh, four times a week, you're more than welcome to if uh, if you had the uh, the stamina. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was there was always something going on, um, and like I said, that was definitely a different period in time where. Where not only were factory riders allowed to do it, um, 
but uh, you know, privateers back then, like myself, I I can go make a little extra cash, uh, you know, racing a, a, a GFI race at Paris at night or a Star West or or whatever it would be, um, and that was always uh, that was always good with you know, obviously when you're a privateer trying to make more money. So. For sure. Now, uh, throughout these questions that I've got for you, uh, I've allotted some uh, best story of blank moments where we can uh, kind of get off topic a little bit. And uh, I'll ask you for your best story from uh, of, of a certain rider or a certain team that you ride for. Uh, first one that, I, that came to mind uh, was to ask you, uh, what's your best Michael Brandis story? Michael Brandis story? <laughs> well... <laughs> I, I there's quite a few of them, you know. Um, I, I figured. Yeah, you know, Michael Brandt. He's he's a he's a funny guy. Um, a lot of them I probably can't even say on this show. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, hopefully, maybe someone that uh, you can say or uh, the the G-rated or maybe the uh, the PG-13 version <laughs> of one of your stories. I, I'll tell you one quick one, okay. Uh, Michael Brandt, um, we were in, there was a race, and they still have the race. It's, I believe it's in September every year in Montreal, Canada. <laughs> and all of the American riders generally would travel together. Um, the promoter would just take a handful of Americans, whether it would be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Americans, and they'd fly them up. So we would all stay in the same hotel anyways. Uh, we were um, down in the hotel lobby um, the night that we got there and, and, um, him and I, there was a bunch of us in there and we were talking and, and I was just messing around with Brandis, you know, and, and I wasn't trying to start any rumors or anything, but, uh, you know, motor, motocross guys are just, they're fun to be around. They're, all of them are jokesters. Uh, I mean, I got endless amount of stories about jokes, but anyway, we were sitting in the lobby and, uh, I was just messing with him saying, hey, you know, um, there's a rumor going around that um, you and David Pinger are, are, are gay. And, yeah, they're together. And, and you're together. And, and, and I don't have anything against gays by any means, you know. Anyway, <laughs> but he, he was like, you got to be kidding me. Who, who's saying that? You know, and I had him going for a little while. And uh, it was pretty funny because he was asking around and whatnot, but. There's that's a PG thirteen one right there, but there's there's plenty of stories, um, you know. Well, I'm sure it's not ter- terribly. Uh, it's it's not too far fetched. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't put it too far past Pingree, but um, <laughs> that's that's an excellent story. I appreciate that. Um, now. As as youth, before you went pro, I gotta imagine living in SoCal and like we did, I did it up here in Canada as well. We all emulate the pros. We look up to them. Uh, is there anything that you did uh, to your bike or with your gear that made you tr- like you were trying to look like one of your favorite riders growing up? Well, I wouldn't necessarily uh, say trying to look like any particular rider. Um, you know, nowadays it's a little bit different, but back then, um, I, I'm I'm a big Mitch Payton fan. Uh, I've always I always have been, and I um, I would always try to uh, make my bikes, you know, kind of look like his a little bit if I could, uh, like his race team. Um, as far as gear goes, you know, everyone kind of 
you know, they try to get special butt patches made or they uh, they try to do maybe certain color schemes or this or that. But I wouldn't say that I that I would try to emulate any particular rider uh, in general now. Fair enough. Um, well, I had a full, full out, um, Chevy trucks Kawasaki back in, uh, 2001. So, uh, safe to say that I was, uh, uh, flying the Carmichael flag pretty hard. Oh, that's cool. That, that, you know, that was one of my favorite looking motorcycles. It very clean looking and, yes, sir. Um, the, the bike just looked amazing. I couldn't agree more, man. I uh, love those bikes. In fact, uh, I went ahead and uh, made two replicas of them out of my uh, 03 KX125 and my 05 KX250. They are matching, and uh, they look just like Yogi and James' bike from 04. Oh, that's, a, that's super cool, man. I'm sure that looks amazing. You betcha. Um, now, like... When did you start to feel like you might have had enough speed to get to that next level, the pro level? Well, if, you know, when I was a kid, you know, probably just like any other kid that races moto, growing up racing moto, they want, that was my dream to be a pro. And uh, when I knew that I had the speed, it was probably, I don't know, when I was 17 or 18. Um, uh, a little short story here. I was, when I was a kid, um, when I was a kid, my, my, my dad took away my motorcycle for two years. And when I was 14 to 16, and the reason why he took away my motorcycles was because, uh, I would ditch when I was a freshman in high school, I would ditch school to go ride my motorcycle. And he's, you know, I would do it once a week, once every other week. And he finally said, you know, if you keep ditching, I'm going to, I'm going to sell you and your brother's motorcycle. And my brother wasn't even ditching. So <laughs> I, I thought he was kidding. And anyways, he, I continued to ditch to go ride my motorcycle and he finally sold him. So I didn't ride a motorcycle for two years. I actually got into BMX. So at the end of that two year period, um, my dad just out of nowhere asked me mm-hmm. if I wanted to ride a motorcycle. And I said, heck yeah. And that is kind of the moment when, you know, I, I realized um, that's for sure what I wanted to do. I had the drive to do it. And, I mean, I didn't really have, I didn't know I had the speed at that time, but I went from a novice or a C rider to a B rider or intermediate to a pro within a two-year period because I was so driven because my dad took away my motorcycles for two years and, and I felt like I missed out and, you know, I had a bunch of hunger and I was ready to go. Um, you know, it's just really about learning the ropes. Um, once you, once you get to the pro level, it's really about learning the ropes on what what the do's and the don'ts, um, is what it comes down to. Um, and that was when I was 16 is when I started riding again. So probably 17 or 18, I knew I had the speed. Um, and of course, I was a privateer. I was getting help from Suzuki, but that's kind of the time when I knew that I, you know, had some speed, and I, I definitely had the hunger at that time. For sure. And is that around the same time that you're you're heading out to uh, the ranch to uh, take on guys like Jeff Willow and uh, Robbie Skaggs in the 125? Be modified, pulling home uh, second place. In fact, pulling home a moto win went uh, one five two for second overall, right behind Robbie. 
Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, you know. You missed I, it by I, three points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I My brother has a championship there in the C class, and, and I don't have That's one of nice. that. You know, I really want to go back into that class and try to try to get one here uh, in the next few years. But um, I went to the ranch twice, and um, the the first year I was there, I did get second behind Robbie Skagg. The second year there, I had a bunch of problems, um, you know, crashing in practice, getting a concussion, whatever. But you know, I I never went there as a as a kid on like a a sixty or an eighty five or that. But I did go there as a beer writer, and, and um, that was about that same time. Absolutely, no. It seems like, uh, and that that kind of springboarded you into uh, kind of getting onto the radar to uh, step into the pro scene in the months prior to uh, making your pro debut. Um, what what kind of like? Bro- like what kind of deals were you trying to broker with teams? You're getting some support with Suzuki. Um, like were the, what 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 kind of bikes were you on? Like uh, what 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 happened the the months before you ended up taking your first uh, first pro gate drop? Well, back then it was slightly different than uh, when I say back then. It seems like it was you know 50 years ago, <laughs> but times have changed and it's a little different now. You get kids like uh, Adam Santorillo that signed a pro deal long before he was pro and there's and I just yeah. somebody yesterday that a bunch of kids are trying to find pro deals that are 13 14 15 years old at the moment so it it was slightly different back then um, there wasn't really a lot of brokering you know going on uh, negotiations with um, at the pro level when you're an amateur but um, back then you know I was I was riding, my dad bought me, when I was 16, he bought me a KX125, and I blew the thing up at Glen Helen, and the thing locked up on me. Um, so, <laughs> it's a funny story. I wrote, it, I wrote it probably a week, thing blew up, went over the bars, um, didn't break anything, I was scared to death to get back on it, so my dad put it up for sale, and he went to... Um, I believe it was uh, Suzuki Country Racing there in Norco, California, and bought a Suzuki fan. And that's how I got hooked up uh, with Pat Alexander at Suzuki. Um, you know, I was winning the Golden State races in SoCal, and as a as a novice or sea rider is what they call it now. But um, I was riding a Suzuki from that point on, um, and then I got help through, you know, American Suzuki at the time, and you know, going to Loretta's as a B rider than an A rider. Um, you know, that was a huge help to me and, and my family. We didn't grow up, you know, well off at all. And, and Pat Alexander was a huge help. He, he hooked it up, man. I mean, back then you'd get, <laughs> it's crazy. Back then you'd get, you know, seven motorcycles. You get to keep the bikes. You get to sell the bikes. You get to keep the money. Uh, you get a $20,000 parts budget. Um, uh, I don't think it's necessarily like that nowadays as, as an amateur, unless you're on a, a top tier team. Um, yes, sir. So, oh yeah, well that's right in the in the wheelhouse of when I remember uh, or hearing about stories of local pros getting um, two one twenty fives, a two fifty, and a five hundred. 
to ride throughout the year and then maybe they just sell them back at the, or they give them back at the end of the year and, and pay the difference or like there was, there was a lot of, there's a lot of support that was available to riders, especially for, for bikes and stuff like that. Um, what, like, were you, were you tough on stuff? Were you going through bikes quick, pretty quickly or what's your story there? No, actually I wasn't tough on, on the motorcycle itself. Um, there are certain parts of the motorcycle that I was, you know, hard <laughs> on maybe clutches, um, depending, well, back then on a 125, I was hard on a clutch. Um, you know, each rider's different. They have their own personalities with the motorcycle and they, you know, they like certain things and, uh, they, you know, I would always like as anyone other rider would a new set of tires on them. Like I hated riding with used tires. I just, I absolutely hated it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get spoiled when <laughs> Once you start getting free stuff and you, you get, you know, at least I did. I got a little spoiled. But anyways, uh, you know, graphics, I was hard on, on my shrouds. I would squeeze my shrouds real hard and mess up my graphics. You know, that's kind of typical. But uh, I wouldn't say, other than that in the clutch, I wouldn't say there, there was anything else in particular. Fair enough. No, there's, uh, it's amazing how fast you guys can go through graphics. Like, uh, I know as a kid, I, like, my, my riding instructor would tell me, like, you're supposed, you should try and rip these graphics off, man. That's how hard you want to, uh, uh, to, to squeeze you through knees. And I eventually did, get, uh, uh, develop that habit, and which is now very expensive for me to keep my bikes looking good. But yeah, even after a, like a local pro moto, some of those guys, their graphics are done. They're gone. They're like, they're, <laughs> they just squeeze them right off, man. Absolutely. And you know, Wearing knee braces, you know, you, you know as well as I do. That, I mean, that just tears them up even more. Um, and yeah, even though you wear the protectors on your knee braces, it still tears up the graphics. So there's nothing you can really do to save them. <laughs> For sure. Now, what kind of gear did you uh, wear when you were going pro? And uh, was it just free gear, or did you get some money as well? Well, uh, let's see. When I when I first turned pro, um, I was wearing San Jose, 1994. Yeah, I was. Sorry, hit. I was wearing Cinesalo gear at the time. Um, I got hooked up through Cinesalo. Um, Bob Rackamp, uh, he was a distributor for Cinesalo, and uh, through the McGrath family. Uh, I was really good friends with the McGrath family. Um, you know, Jack and the, the, the mom and dad, Tracy, the sister, and Jeremy. And they, they helped me out so much. In my early years, it's not even not even funny. They they helped me get a lot of sponsors. Um, you know when I didn't have any, even though even when I was racing, uh, you know for American Suzuki as an amateur, um, they they pointed me in the right direction and and uh, they they definitely helped me out tremendously. And I started out with Cinesalo, uh, rode with them for a few years and um, kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, through the early years, um, so I, and you know it's it's tough. Every I think every rider would would want to stick with one gear company their entire career. Um, obviously, most of us uh, don't get that opportunity uh, for whatever reason. There's a bunch of different reasons, but um, I mean, I would have loved to stay with one company, one gear company, one boot company, one goggle company, one manufacturer that would be ideal um but you know it's it's not uh not how it usually ends up 
Yeah, guys seem to uh, change with the the tides a bit, you know, like whether it be uh, like the teams change uh, gear deals, sponsorships one year to the next, uh, whether it be goggles, helmet, you name it. Uh, guys tend to, to go where the money's at and um, yeah, things get, get moved around quite a bit. Uh, quick question. Uh, who makes better cookies, Tracy or Jeremy McGrath? <laughs> uh, Tracy for sure. Tracy for sure. But... <laughs> Uh, Brandon, there. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was told to bring up uh, something like that uh, with from from Brandon Dunn, and uh, I guess it's a great time to uh, to bring him into the conversation a little bit. Uh, a good friend of yours, as uh, like your formidable years and throughout your fifteen through uh, like your well, you guys are still great friends now. And uh, like, how the how did you guys develop a friendship? And uh, also seeing him get a position at Bill's Pipes, and uh, what do you think of that position that he's got, and uh, as well as the product? Well, we've been friends. Man, he, he was always there. He he was always in my ear. Uh, I mean, right from the get-go. Um, he's a good motivator, I can tell you that. Um, he's probably, he should have been a comedian. The guy is so funny, man. I, I love, the, love the guy to death. He's funny. Uh, like I said, a good motivator. Um there from the beginning uh, i mean he traveled with me a little bit uh we would go to i mean every local race he was there um you know we grew up probably i would say i met brandon probably about well it's 16 or 17 or so and um you know he uh we knew mutual friends and and uh, man he was a good mover he would he would fire me up uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you 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 got that sent from him talking to him. Uh, yes, sir. On his podcast, but he's super good guy. Um, very very intense. Um, glad to see him that he's working at Bill's Pipe. Uh, you know, Bill has so much uh, respect from me. Um, super smart guy. Product is uh, amazing. I haven't used any of the current products. I haven't rode a motorcycle. In about four years, um, but shame on you. <laughs> I, I work too much, man. I don't have enough time. I would love. Oh, I, I believe you. Uh, but you know, um, I have nothing but respect for Bill and Jeff down at Bill's Pipe, and I'm glad to see Brandon working there. Um, so they're all all super good guys. Did you end up uh, having a Bill's Pipe on uh, your bike sometime throughout uh, your career? I did. Uh, you know, Bill helped me out um, probably in the in the early days. Uh, he did help me out. Um, I remember going down to his old shop down there off the 15 uh, when I was a kid. Uh, when my when my dad bought that Suzuki from from uh, uh, Suzuki Country Racing down there in Norco, and um, yeah, absolutely, Bill helped us out, and I appreciate his help. No doubt, man. That's uh, it's a great company to be involved with. Glad to uh, have Bill's Pipes on board with the Big MX Radio Show. Appreciate those guys, especially Brandon, for his awesome interview. If you haven't listened to it yet, check the archive. Uh, it was only done uh, about a week and a half ago. So, um, But let's talk about 
your first uh, first pro race or first pro results. Uh, a kid out of uh, out of California comes out and gets a ninth, top ten, first race out, uh, or at least the first main event you hit. Uh, the the racer X vault doesn't tell me of any races you didn't qualify for. Uh, so was that uh, the first time the you stepped onto the pro scene and uh, a, a top ten's not the, not too bad at all. I believe that was my second time. My first pro supercross race was in uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, that was the the race before the one that you're talking about uh, when I got a ninth. Uh, yes, I did not make the main event, and the, you're right, the Racer X Vault doesn't tell you if uh, riders like myself made the main or not. Um, uh, but They should do that, honestly, because there's a lot of guys that looks like they have no results, and they just <laughs> didn't happen to qualify that night. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, um, I came close. I think I missed it. If I recall correctly, I think I missed it, the main event by one position. Um, and then I was so fired up that, you know, the next race I did get a ninth. <laughs> so. Put it uh, deep inside the field. Uh, a ninth place position uh, mixed in there with uh, a lot of top guys. And uh, this is this is back when the West Coast was uh, filled with riders. You had uh, the Mexican champion Pedro Gonzalez, Craig Decker on the pro circuit team, uh, Damon Huffman. I believe uh, that particular year, it was the first year that he won that championship. Um, yeah, like guys, like you, you edged out Brian Deegan for the for the ninth spot. Uh, what was it like uh, racing with the general? Oh, it was good. You know, um, he's he's a great competitor. Uh, we were actually on the same team in uh, 1996. Uh, we were racing for the Chaparral, Chaparral yeah, team. And um, you know, this is obviously a few years later, but. Um, you know, it was good racing against him. He's he's just a good competitor. He's got a lot of drive, and uh, you know, those mid nineties were pretty crazy racing against each other. <laughs> no doubt. And now seeing uh, his kids coming through the ranks, uh, he was actually a, a very like potent racer in his time. Like obviously, anyone who's known the sport from two thousand on, you only know him as a freestyle guy. But and the the uh, industry mogul that he's become, but uh, like a Great rider, great racer, and now uh, raising two kids that uh, look to have more skill on the bike than I do already. You know, I, I've seen some of their, some of uh, his kids' videos, and, and they're just amazing. Um, what what his kids are jumping, um, you know, they have their private track at their house, um, going to, you know, tracks in SoCal, like, uh, you know, either Star West or, or Paris. I'm watching video of his kids jumping, you know, 50, 60, 70-foot gaps on a, on a little on a little bike, yeah. you know, a little KTM, and it's just amazing on how fast these kids are going, and it's really cool to watch, you know. Absolutely. Uh, now, um, before we get into the '96 season, which I would admit was one of your uh, more most storied seasons, uh, you ended up getting on the box uh, in uh, your I believe it was your either your first year or second year. Um, sorry, here was- uh, Anaheim. It was my second year yeah. in 1995. I got on the box for my first time in, in San Jose. Jose. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pingery out front, and uh, the defending champion uh, Huffman right in front of you. Um, tell us a little bit about that particular night. Your first top, uh, your first time on the podium. That was that night was you know your first time getting on the box is special, regardless of any situation. It was just a, it was very exciting, very cool. Um, I mean, I, I was just 
I was so happy, uh, you know, it, you think when, before your first podium, you just think it's so far away, you know what I mean? If that makes sense, it seems yeah. like, so it seems like a stretch to get there, especially when, you know, you're getting a, a seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth. I mean, that's a long ways away to get on the box and, um, getting on the box. Yeah. At the first. time you had, this is a be- this is six positions better than your personal best to that date. Yeah, absolutely. It. It was just, it was super, super, super amazing, man. I, and I was, you know, Supercross, um, I was still a young rider, and I, I wasn't fully in shape like like they are nowadays. So um, Supercross shape and Motocross shape are two different, two different beasts. So, you know, my tongue was dragging by about lap 11 or 12, and, and I barely hung on for that third place. But, um, you know, I think uh, Ryan Hughes was behind me. I, I believe he... He crashed on the first lap, maybe, uh, but nevertheless, it was you know it was a, it was an amazing amazing first podium experience for me and uh, a dream come true. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was really really cool. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, Ryan was knocking on the door when the checkered flag flew, flew but nevertheless, you took uh, the position from him. The next time that you were on the on the podium, nineteen ninety six, Anaheim. And uh, the the number twenty nine gets the whole shot with Greg Schnell uh, sitting in second place on a Chaparral Suzuki, uh, and you you went on to have quite the battle with Kevin Windham after helping the twenty nine machine to the top of a berm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that iconic race uh, and uh, helping Mister Pingree to uh, exit the track so nicely. <laughs> well, Anaheim was always I always look forward to racing Anaheim. I'm sure. Uh, a lot of people do, especially in the SoCal uh, area. Um, that was considered my home race. And yeah. I always really, really enjoyed racing Anaheim. I always liked the soil there. I always liked, uh, for the most part, the tracks. Um, atmosphere, you, obviously, at your home race, you have your family and your friends and you know your sponsors, and you have everyone cheering for you. So that, that helps out a lot. But um, that race in particular, I remember... Um, I, I got off to a, a good start. Um, I was a heavier rider. Uh, I was probably about 170 pounds on a 125, which is super heavy. Um, when you consider uh, someone like David Finger, he was probably 15 to 20 pounds less than me, at least, I would say. So yeah, buck 50 tops. Exactly, at, at that point in time. And uh, I could never get down below, I mean, 168, 169. Uh, before I would start feeling really, really tired. But anyways, um, I got off to a good start. It was a short uh, first uh, straight to the first turn. And, um, you know, you're just super excited when you're up front. Um, you know, you and you know when you, when you have someone like Kevin Linden behind you, I think James, James Dobb was in there, uh, you know, Mitch Payton's team, he was in front of me, David Pingree, and, and I wanted to combine as soon as I could. And, and you know, to be honest, Kim and I, we always used to have a run-in. Um, it's not like I, I hate the guy, um, but when I saw him in front of me, you know, you, I, I needed to get around him as quickly as I possibly could. And, um, you know, I had to had to force the issue as soon as I could. I knew Wyndham was behind me. And, and um, you know, that was a fun race. I, I can remember that race like it was yesterday. 
So. Well, no doubt. Like, uh, Pinger gets the whole shot, and uh, you're right in there. In fact, at some at one point, you're in third, uh, and then make a nice pass on uh, on Kevin, and you go straight to the lead. You're out front, led a, quite a few laps, and, uh, yeah, the 97 machine was up front looking good, and uh, you stuck it out all the way to the very end, edging out James Dobb as well. And uh, David Villeman, I might add. Yeah, Villeman was in there, and... Uh, I don't know if that was his first race or not, but um, he, he was right in the mix. Um, you know, when I when I moved past uh, David Pingree, I uh, just it was put him up put him up high in the corner, and and um, you know didn't didn't hit him too. I mean, hard at all. Just put him up so high that he couldn't put his didn't have any footing, and he fell over. Um, but fun another funny story. Uh, Kevin Wyndham, you know, obviously he won that race, and I finished second. Um, my bike at that time had no factory parts on it uh it was just you know bolt-on parts you can buy at your local dealership i at the at the time i was running fms pies that you could order online um obviously not back then they didn't have the internet back then but anyways uh uh wyndham uh his bike was a full-on factory bike and um quick and those yamahas were good those yamahas were really good um and the funny thing is, where I was getting at is, in 2002, I raced for the Yamaha Choi team. And I actually, they gave me the parts that were off of his bike from 1996. So I had, in 2002, uh, I had a chance to use the parts that he was, that I was racing again in 1996. And I could not believe how good they were. Um, that's incredible. That is incredible. 1996 uh, Yamaha, and yeah, like that. Those engines, and I was like at the time for their time in 1996, those bikes were like almost I wouldn't say space age, but they were about as maxed out as two strokes could get. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know when I got on uh, that Yamaha truck in 2002, and I they gave me the parts to to use on my bike, I and they told me where they came from. I'm like. You gotta be kidding me! I had a race. This is what I was up against back in 1996. <laughs> you know, and and my bike was nothing special. Um, you know, in '96, it like I said, it was just a standard, off the shelf motorcycle. And um, so I, I felt how uh, how how regular was that, or how common was that that you'd be racing, uh, or you'd be able to put in good finishes on uh, basically a production motorcycle with a couple of bolt-ons? Well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that common, actually. Um, not back then. Every now and again, you'd get a privateer that was up there. Um, you know, and, and motocross, it's not necessarily more the bike. It's more the person than the motorcycle. Um, obviously, the bike helps. But, um, you know, especially with with uh, two-strokes and, you know, gold carburetors and all that stuff, it was, it was difficult to fine-tune everything to make your bike... Um, as good or, or competitive against the factory machine, it was just very, very difficult. And you know, obviously, factories have their resources and all that, but um, you just do your best. And you know, and and I had the will and the drive, and I just I made the I tried to make the best of it uh, mm-hmm. at that moment. All right, guys. All right, guys. It's time for a commercial. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You too can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. 
Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable sweat absorbing liner and generous eye port design to accommodate any goggle choice are just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. Bees, Emigos. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey kids, start out every morning with a fat bowl. So, what do you think of Rich Taylor? Lighter than hair. And stronger than steel. So, what that means is it can move much faster. 2014 X Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the X. Volcano and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. What's up guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance. He's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown full rebuild on your forks or, or shock. Call up Roy Borton today at 204-633-2722. Absolutely. Now, uh, you seem like uh, throughout your career a Supercross specialist. In fact, uh, you're by far your best uh, results were, were indoors. Uh, and only one national... Um, but between uh, your your pro debut in 1994 and then uh, Glen Helen, uh, the national that you that you hit in 1997, uh, what were you up to in the summer times? Just uh, Golden State races and uh, hitting on chicks with Brandon, or what? <laughs> uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much. You know, racing. I, it wasn't that I was. I wouldn't say necessarily say I was better in Supercross. I think I just had more fun at Supercross. Um, I think. You know, there was definitely more money in Supercross at the time. Um, there probably still is over, uh, rather than oh, yeah. cross, uh, motocross. It's, it costs more, you know, when you're a privateer, um, you know, just to make the main and Supercross was a lot more money than, you know, going to Pennsylvania High Point or 
uh, Millville or, or whatever track is that you, you've got to drive across the country to to spend thousands of dollars to make nothing. Um, I think that was my main reasoning why I, I like motocross more. Um, I seem that, you know, I ra- would rather race supercross than moto. Um, but there were times when, you know, when I was focused and, and in very good shape that I, I did very well, uh, in moto. Um, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I was a more supercross specialist. I just, I think I had more fun doing it. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. Like, and also, uh, like the outdoors sometimes comes down to, uh, what kind of support you have, what kind of team you're on. If you have the, the, the support where the team is going to all the races, you can fly to all the races and, uh, just show up then. And, and also you're not having to, uh, like the bikes are a lot more, uh, reliable in supercross. You're not asking as much of them, the hot heat, the long motos. Uh, I could imagine, uh, rebuilding, uh, 125 two strokes back in the day was would pretty much be on a week to week basis um, for anyone who was doing the nationals as a as a privateer or or a top level pro. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you have twelve motocross nationals throughout the year, twenty four motos, and you know, thirty minutes with two laps each moto. I mean, it, it tears up your bike, your motorcycle, whether it's a 125 or two stroke or four stroke, whatever it would be. Um, so if you don't have the budget and the and the resources to to make it happen, um, you know the next best thing is the money coming out of your own pocket to pay for it, and that's that's kind of what I tried to stay away from, and that's why I didn't race a lot of nationals back then. Um, that's when you know Brandon and I were picking up chicks. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, and uh, and who is better at picking up chicks, yourself or Brandon? Me, of course, absolutely me. Yeah, you're a bit taller, good looking guy. <laughs> he would like to think he is, but no, no, no. That would... Fair enough. Plus, you had the "I'm a pro motocross racer" thing going for you. I gotta imagine you must have dropped that a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. He had a couple good lines, and I had a couple good lines about you know being <laughs> motocross racers or owners of different companies, clothing companies, whatever companies they may be. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, best Kevin uh, or Kenny Watson story uh, of of getting of knowing him. Of course, uh, he was wrenching for uh, Deegan back in the day. Yeah, Kenny Watson. Seriously, there are so many stories. I mean, it, <clears throat> back in the day, you know, he would drive the Motor Triple X right around. Um, uh, some of the the best memories that I have um, aren't even at. Uh, the top level at Supercross or Motocross. They were more so going to local races, like um, there was uh, an arena cross series that Jim Holly used to put on on the West Coast. And, um, you know, he'd go to San Francisco and Reno, Nevada, Fresno, California, so places like that. And those were some of the best times. And Watson would be there all the time, you know. He'd be selling the Motor Triple X merchandise and, and, uh, uh, he was just a character, man. I a lot of stories again. I you know I can't uh, think about one in particular, but he uh, super funny guy, man. <laughs> well, and, and I'm glad to see that Kenny Watson is uh, you know involved with the RCH team. Um, you know they're doing an excellent job over there. It looks like, and um, they definitely stepped up uh, to the plate and 
they're doing all the right things and it's it's really cool to see that for sure if I had told you in 1997 when Kenny Watson is putting glitter all over Brian Deegan's bike and uh, that that man is going to be a contributing me- member to one of the most successful teams in the pits right now in 2015, 20 years later, what would you have said? Absolutely no way possible. It it blows my mind how, um, how that is. It's been, you know, coming from back in the mid-90s, late-90s, uh, to what he was doing then and, and what he's doing now. I mean, it's, it's a, definitely a, a different different aspect of what he's doing. Um, total respect it, uh, what he's doing now. Uh, he's doing a good job, it looks like. And, and uh, you know, we, Gary used to, <clears throat> we're all friends with Gary from back in the day. He used to, you know, he's from Las Vegas, obviously, and, and um, he used to come down and, uh, stay with whoever he could back in the day, you know, in the mid nineties, uh, as a privateer, uh, driving his van around and, and it's good. He made one main event, that guy. <laughs> was that Daytona by any chance? He made one main event ever. Yeah. Mi- yeah. Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you know, he, he, uh, I mean, he lived the privateer life. He lived that struggle, uh, early on. That's for, that's for sure. You know, trying to make it happen. And, and, um, it's good to see Kenny Watson hooked up with with Kerry and, and his team. Absolutely. Uh, um, I was thinking of this uh, yesterday as I was watching it. Uh, did you get a chance to either be in, or uh, do you wish you had been in Fresno Smooth? <laughs> Fresno. You know, at the time it was very very cool, and I wish I was in it at the time. Um, but you know, right now I I could care less. <laughs> <laughs> Funny Fair movie. enough. Uh, Very funny movie. That would have been cool. Yeah. Absolutely. It's cool to see. Uh, I think Jason uh, Jason Lawrence has resurrected the uh, uh, career of Bubba uh, from there because uh, I think they've been hanging out a fair bit from what I tell from Instagram. Yeah, I, I did see that actually on Instagram. Uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting pair right there. Uh, two different decades, but uh, uh, similar storylines going on. Absolutely. Now, you had the opportunity to compete on the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, sometimes in the same year. First of all, how was that possible? Because I, I, I didn't know that, that was, uh, you actually were allowed to do that. Uh, but also, uh, knowing back then that the two uh, coasts would clash at times, uh, basically both, all, all of the, the racers slid into to one main event. Um, what was it like having those two coasts come together? And is that something you think that they should impl- implement now, having basically only one race now that they should kind of figure out who's who in the, the 125 or 250 class? Well, back in the day, in the mid-90s, um, and I don't exactly remember what year they got rid of it, but there used to be, uh, like there is now, an East Coast um I guess it would back then it was the 125 class, and then the West Coast 125 class. Well, I believe there would be two stops that was uh, an East-West class. I guess you could say, then they would race against each other. Um, and in my opinion, I, and I've always thought this, um, I would like to see both the coasts just go away and just have it all one class. I think that would be that would be super cool. Um, I think it would give sponsors, um, sponsors, you know, mainstream sponsors would look at it at the sport a little bit more professionally, and uh, they may they may make some decisions on 
maybe sponsoring teams based on that because I know a lot of main, uh, mainstream sponsors do not uh, want to sponsor um, 120 or 250 guys now. A lights program, yeah. Or, or teams, life program, whatever you want to call it, uh, because there's only you know seven or eight races on each coast, and it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, I would like to see it all just combined, and you know, from from A1 all the way to Las Vegas, just track east-west program. That would be, I think, that would be amazing to watch. I think that would be super, super cool. I totally agree with you, and, and given the fact that they already award uh, national number championship points to the riders from both coasts, like I know if, and that wasn't the case when you were riding, I can only imagine uh, the, the the numbers that you would have been able to have uh, given those points had counted to your national number, because we noticed in 1997, uh, or 1996 rather, you're running uh, the number 97, having had a, a pretty good year the year pre- uh, previous, so um, in Supercross anyway so like what's your thoughts on that really like uh that the the different coasts uh their points count just the same as the 450 guys well i mean i would like to see the points count in the in the small bike class just like the big bike class but if you combine the east and the west so there'd be a 17 round of, of 250 uh racing and everyone's combined you know um i think most of the teams well, most of the teams, minus maybe a truly designed team, you know, they're strictly a West Coast team. They don't have any East Coast guys, but they do go to the Outdoor National. Um, but, you know, the East-West thing started out back in the day strictly really for, uh, you know, the smaller teams or privateers so they could afford to get to the races because it was, uh, you know, that was kind of a proving ground to step up to the big bike class. So I think those days are kind of gone, and they have been gone for a little while. Um, and I really think it's time to just scrap the East-West crap and just put everyone in the one class. I, I think it would be I think it would be a lot better. I think the racing, or the, at least the caliber of the racing, would be more consistent throughout the field because uh, not to knock any of these guys that are on the like 15th or outside of that in the main events right now, but uh, we're, we're noticing, like, like as much as five to six seconds different between that and the leaders. And they come up on them so quickly, like in a 15 lap moto, you have guys that are going a lap down on lap eight. And, and that's, uh, that's not good for television. That doesn't make the sport look very professional uh, with guys that are rolling around out there or, or just not, not even close to the, to the speed. So if, like I said, if you move both coasts together, you'd have a more consistent group and uh, you'd have guys that like, you'd have a top 15 that uh, could all be kind of interchangeable rather than the, maybe like right now you're seeing on the East coast with the, the same podium, uh, three, four, four races in the row, except for of course this weekend with uh, Martin, not making it uh, throwing in a big wrench into the points. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. I, I just, uh, I'll hopefully they'll, They'll think about that. I know that it's been talked about before, and, and um, you know, the, a lot of the teams and uh, promoters, they've, they've discussed things like that before to ch- maybe switch it. Um, I think I think it's a big step, but I think it's a right step uh, moving moving the sport forward for sure. I totally agree. Uh, I, would, I would love to see it. Uh, it, it makes for better television um, to get more higher ratings, uh, whatever, whatever – whatever you want to call it, uh, more sponsor money, I think it'd benefit the sport overall for sure. 
Now, uh, on a lighter note, uh, how how fast uh, was the RV going as you were trapped on top of it going down the freeway? <laughs> oh man! Well, and and how did you end up on the top of the RV in the first place? Well, let's see. We went to <laughs> Brandon and I. We would go. I was I was mentioning the Reno Jim Holly Arena Cross earlier, and we would go up there every the November. Arena Cross. It was it was an arena cross. Uh, Jim Holly had an, had an arena cross series, uh, a small series on the West Coast, and it was man. Like I said, we had some of the best, uh, at least I did, uh, memories and, and just absolute fun times when you're when you're a youngster. Um, you know, getting on the road, traveling up there. Anyways, one one year we took the RV up there, and on the way back, Brandon. Uh, I don't know if he, he did something to the air vent and he, he said something. And so we pulled over. I went up and checked on it. Little did I know he had a plan and he got in the RV and, you know, he gets back on the 395 doing about, I don't know what he was doing, 55, 50, 55. I don't remember what it was, but I'm on top of hanging. Too fast. My life. <laughs> uh, he, Brandon's a jokester. If you haven't found that out, he's he, he's definitely a jokester. He likes to mess around. That's for sure. No kidding. Uh, I, when I heard that story, I was just shake my head. The the thought of uh, a, a teenager up on top of a, a an RV flying down the highway for he said a couple of miles. So that must have been uh, quite the experience for you. Oh yeah, and, and that's not the only time uh, we were going down the highway at high speeds. Uh, with me on the outside of the vehicle. <laughs> Perfect. No, that's uh, as, as it should be. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the switch from 125s to 250Fs. You were caught right in the crossroads of that four-stroke, uh, their revolution that happened in throughout the late 90s and especially with the 250Fs into the, the early 2000s. Um, like, what was it like? Like, as the the bikes were kind of changing, all of a sudden, the uh, especially in the in the two fifty class, which is now the four fifty class, two uh, fifties to four fifties wasn't a huge gap. A lot of riders, even until two thousand and five, weren't sure which bike was better. But as soon as the two fifty F came out, it was pretty clear to see uh, these things were uh, were faster. They made power better than the one twenty fives. They were able to clear the triples more effectively and uh, basically squash the one twenty fives altogether. Uh, what was it like making that switch? Well, really, it was a it was a very easy switch, um, in my opinion. Um, riding a two stroke is much more difficult than riding a four stroke. I think uh, riding a four stroke. Um, it it helps out your flaws. Like whatever flaws that you may have on a two stroke, it definitely helps out your flaws. Uh, whether whether it's throttle control, clutch control, um, you know any kind of speed issues, it, the four stroke it just makes it easier to ride and easier to go fast. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing uh, is as soon as you get on a four stroke, uh, you can literally go you know a second faster, maybe even more on a, on the any kind of track. Uh, the switch, the switch from, I, I, I can remember the first time that I rode a four stroke <clears throat> was in 2001 and uh, I absolutely loved the thing. It, you know, back then it was quite a bit heavier than the 125. That's the thing that you had to get used to. It didn't handle uh, like you do now, that's for sure. Um, 
by making the switch, um, just learning the, the different ways to adjust to the four stroke. Um, the actual transition was easy, like I said, but learning the different things and you know how to how to maintain them and do all that stuff uh, that took a little bit, and I think it took a little bit for everyone to get used to. But uh, as far as actually riding the motorcycle, um, it was it was a really really easy transition. Now, if for example, let's say the four strokes were before the two stroke area and, and people were transitioning to two strokes, that would be really hard. Um, two strokes are a lot harder to ride than a four stroke, but, uh, you know, I, um, I didn't have any, any difficult time at all transitioning. No, absolutely. It was a, it's a totally different way to ride the bike. You, you, you don't have to shift as much. Uh, you can let the bike do more of the work. You're never in the wrong gear really in a four stroke, unless you happen to try a, a hairpin corner in fourth gear or something like that. Although even I'm sure now they could try it, they could make it work. Um, I know myself, I ride two strokes, uh, for, for budget reasons. Uh, four strokes are just way out of my price range as far as keeping them on point and looking good and, and, and being, being consistent on them and yeah like just you you blow up a 125 and uh 150 bucks plus a case of beer and you got yourself a brand new motorcycle um like the the way the the way a four stroke makes power especially for the starts it was uh the ultimate lethal weapon especially in the early 2000s yeah it was um the first well i was i wrote a four stroke like i said in 2001 um kind of went back and forth with it uh, with the 125 and, and uh, uh, riding at 250F against the 125 was definitely an advantage even in the early days um, I don't know I don't know if they made a lot more power uh, I wouldn't say they did at that time but like I said it was easier to ride uh, the starts were definitely key you could hook up whether it was a concrete start or a dirt start um and nine times out of ten, you could be on a stock 250F and just rip a whole shot, you know, on a 38 horsepower, you know, YZ or RM125, whoever you're racing it. So, uh, key, the starts were definitely key uh, in those days, and it was a lot easier on a four-stroke, that's for sure. Yeah, now you're starting to sound like Jeff Emig in, on the broadcast. <laughs> hey, Jeff Emig, man, he knows what he's talking about. He. He's been there, done that, and and he was definitely one of the best starters of, of all time, that's for sure. So, um, he does mention that he's been, he's been mentioning that quite a bit. <laughs> That's uh, that's his, his keys to the race every race, but uh, where, no, nowhere else on the track can you uh, make up that kind of ground on all forty guys or all twenty guys if it happens to be Supercross. No, well, I was always told that there are actually two races in one. You know, one is from the starting gate to the first turn. And then from the first turn, the checkered flag. So. Well, you were able to capture your first checkered flag coming across the stripe in the first place position in uh, on January 22nd, the year 2000. Y2K, for those who remember, was in the rearview mirror. Uh, and, uh, and your Yamaha was on the top step of the podium. And we're in San Diego, which uh, isn't exactly Anaheim, but it's pretty much a hometown race for you. Uh, Clue us in on how that night went for you and then uh, a little bit of the drama that ensued the rest of that particular season. Well, uh, you know, obviously that night was was very special to me. Uh, At the time, my main sponsor was out of El Cajon, Motor World of El Cajon. Uh, You know, that's just just east of the stadium down there in San Diego. Um, Yeah. 
I've been there. I, we we bought a motorcycle down there in 2010. Oh, nice, nice. Um, those are some of the best memories that I've had uh, in my motocross career, for sure. Uh, dealing with with those guys down there, super super cool bunch of bunch of people down there. Um, uh, really amazing people, actually, and uh, fun to be around. Very positive. Uh, we all had the same goals. Um, I actually started riding for them. Uh, I rode for Chaparral. Team Chaparral in 1996, 1997, uh, 1996 on a Suzuki, and 1997 on a Yamaha. And then um, after that, uh, I rode for Motorworld, 1998, 99, 2000, and 2001. And um, I actually was, I felt as good in 2000 when I won my first race in 99 uh, coming into the season. Uh, and I think I would have I think I would have won my first race in '99 had I got hurt um, in that Reno Arena Cross I was I was telling you about. Uh, Brandon and I would go up there, you know, a bunch of racers would go up there to Jim Holly's race, and anyway, I I broke my shoulder um, just about five weeks prior to the Anaheim one in 1999. So that kind of ruined my season there in that year. But coming into 2000. Uh, I was super, super, super uh, excited, ready to go. Um, had my dad as my mechanic, which was absolutely amazing to get my first win. Actually, we have a couple wins together uh, as a team, and, and um, not a lot of people get to say that. And the um, first win, I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, I you, growing up as a kid, you – a moto kid, you dream of being in a position like that, and to actually have it come come true. It, I mean, I I can't even express to you how cool of a feeling it is. It's absolutely amazing, um, and uh, I've only had that feeling a few times, and and it was just absolutely very very cool, and this um, is very very yeah, good time. Two wins for you. Uh, two wins in total, I believe, I, I, if, unless I'm miscounting. But uh, you had another one later that year at uh, at Irvine, Texas, um, which I can't imagine is too far from where you're at right now. Um, and that year, you not only rode the 125, but uh, threw your leg over the 250 as well, hitting every single Supercross uh, on the schedule. Um, and with your dad as your mechanic, I gotta imagine uh, not only a, a comfort level, the two of you. Um, like he he knows you like a book and 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 you know what he's expecting of you slash like uh like you, it's a well oiled machine. Uh, first of all, what was it like uh, having your dad as your mechanic throughout that entire year, as well as uh, splitting time between the one twenty five and two fifty? Well, having my my father as my mechanic, you know he he's the one that got me involved in the sport, and you know uh, going through going through life as a young adult, um, you know especially in the mid nineties, it was. It was kind of chaotic at, at at times, and coming into the 2000 season, uh, you know, I asked my dad for for some help. I needed someone that I can trust and someone that knew um, that I was comfortable with working on my motorcycle, and 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 that was that was the guy right there. You know, my father. Uh, it was an absolutely amazing time. Uh, probably the best year um, in my entire career. I had so much fun. He was driving the motorhome, the RV around. Um, we did do the entire Supercross series uh, and outdoor series, and 
switching from the 125 to 250 was was amazing. I, I mean, I was obviously a heavier guy, about 170 pounds. Um, uh, riding at uh, 125 at that weight was at that time wasn't that big of a deal. If I was doing that now, it would be very, very, very difficult. I mean, you can, for example, you can look at Tyler Bowers, um, and uh, he's he's probably a little bit heavier than I would be. And um, I'm really shocked at how well he does at his weight in that small bike class because of all the smaller guys now, all the motocross guys are real small, 160 pounds, maybe 150 pounds. But anyways, um, what a lot of people don't know, um, in 1996, um, one of the main reasons why I did not move up to the big bike class um, other than one year I did, I raced in 2003 on my own Supercross 250 class, a two-stroke. Uh, I I did it on my own time. Um, one of the reasons why I didn't do it more than the one time is because in 96, when I was racing for Shepard, I broke my wrist, my right wrist. And I broke it very, very bad, severely, and had some nerve damage. So um, when I did this, I couldn't. I lost some feeling in my index finger, uh, most of my middle finger, and my thumb, and the inside of my palm. So um, when I would ride a bigger bike, obviously the, the vibration and stuff would make my hand go numb. So obviously, when you're riding a motorcycle, it's not that good. Um, no, that's not good at all. No. So um, that's pretty much the reason why I stuck to the small bike class for such a long time is because of that reason. Um, so, you know, after in a Supercross race, um, going back to the year 2000 when I would switch over to the 250, um, you know, the first part of the race, I would do fairly well. Um, and then towards the end, about the 14 or 15-minute mark is when my hand started going down. A lot of people think it was because I was getting tired, but that wasn't the case. It was because I couldn't hang on anymore because my hand was going up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's actually one of the questions I had for you. Always on the little bike, and uh, yeah, you just diffused it right there with, like, if your hand, if you can, if you don't have the proper grip, you can't continue on. Uh, like anyone who's had like severe arm pump, if you can't control the motorcycle, it's a scary experience. And uh, yeah, so why you, you ended up staying on the uh, the little bikes? But uh, despite being a, a larger guy, and like uh, Travis Preston proved it, you don't have to be uh, little to uh, make those things go fast. Um, did you did you ever have to do any changes to your bike, like uh, riding with a taller seat, lowering the foot peg, stuff like that? Um, I never messed around with my speed. I messed around with my, uh, subframe, um, you know, lowering the subframe is super So, you know, obviously like when you go through the whoops, it wouldn't kick you in the butt, stuff like that. Uh, messed around with foot pegs and stuff like that. But, um, I wasn't necessarily too picky about that kind of stuff. I was more <laughs> picky about my, my clutch lever, my, my front brake lever, position of my handlebar, stuff like that. And my tires, I always had to have good tires. Um, but uh, I know, you know, uh, some, some people are real picky about their, their setup. Uh, I know Dave, Davey Millsaps is in particular, he's picky about kind of what he wants. Uh, Chad Reed is another guy. Chad Reed, obviously he excels, uh, extremely well when he has, when his setup is on point. Um, so, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't too picky. 
is some of that mental whereas like you're kind of like i obviously you're searching for a feel but like is there a way to mentally convince yourself that the feel is right like like i, I think of a guy like weston pike who uh he was able to do amazing things on a privateer suzuki a factory suzuki and now on a full-blown factory jgr yamaha and um like I, I, he has a bit of a just screw it attitude where he's like, this is the best it's going to be put down the laps. Is there strength in that? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> motocross racers, uh, I would say uh, there's a, there, there's a bunch of head games going on. Um, a lot of it's mental and most of it's mental, um, especially nowadays. I, I look at the results um whether it's the the 250 class or the 450 class, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm confused on why there's not more privateers up front than than there would be. Um, then I think it's all mental. Uh, the bikes are so good nowadays. The bikes nowadays are a lot closer. Uh, you know, they're 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 all good. Whereas back in the day, you know, if you're racing the YZ125 like I was in, in the year 98, 99, 2000, 01. That bike was probably the best 125. Well, nowadays, all of them are good. Uh, they may have small differences on what they do each, you know, in, in particular, uh, better than the other, but they're all very, very close and they all make good power. They all handle good. Um, but, uh, I think any of the bikes nowadays are really, really good. Um, you know, obviously I haven't rode in about four years, but, uh, you know, the last time I, I did ride, uh, I I rode all the bikes. I rode a Yamaha, Honda, Suzuki, and a KTM, and they were, I mean, they were all very, very close. I was really shocked how good they were. Right on. Well, I got about uh, five more questions for you. Do I have uh, you, you for a little bit longer, or uh, do I have to let you go? Uh, no, absolutely. Let's, let's do it. All right, man. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, now, 2003 rolls around, and uh, or 2004 rolls around, rather, and you find yourself on uh, the Honda's very first four-stroke 250 machine uh, as James Stewart having one of his most dominant seasons ever. First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about that, the switch to the Honda, as well as um, uh, contending with a guy like James uh, when he was uh, clearly a step above. Well, the 2004 was kind of a weird time in, in my career as far as, um, you know, I was I was in the 250 F class. Um, there were still some 125s in the class. Uh, you know, Honda just came out with a new motorcycle, four-stroke, obviously. Um, Yamaha had theirs already. Cowie and Suzuki were just, just coming into the picture as well. And I was actually going to ride... Um, a YZ125 in the 2004 Supercross series. It's funny, uh, I was just talking to Bones a few days ago from Pro Circuit. He's the uh, Pro Circuit suspension guru. Yeah, of course. I still talk to him all the time, and, and he texted me uh, my YZ125 settings that he had saved from 2004 um, just the other day. And um, But anyways, it was funny. Uh, looking at those settings. Apparently, he's got all of those stashed away in a filing cabinet. He's like, it doesn't matter what year it was. If if you if you worked on your stuff, he's got your your info. Absolutely, I could probably call him right now, and he would probably have stuff from uh, 2000 stacked away somewhere. He would be able to find it for sure. Um, 
but I opted at the very end of 2003, I would say probably maybe right before Christmas time, I was out testing my YZ125, which was super good. I, I couldn't ask for anything better at that time. It was really, really good. And I just happened to ask, uh, you know, a friend, a fellow racer, uh, Timmy Wigan, um, which he just got a Honda 250F bone stock. Uh, I asked him if I could ride it around the track a few times, Supercross track. And he said, yeah, go ahead. So I rode it, and I was like, I mean, this is a no-brainer. Um, so I got rid of my YZ125 and, and got the Honda. I went out and bought a couple Hondas and, uh, you know, footed the bill and, and uh, went racing. And uh, that bike was amazing at that at that mm-hmm. time. It was had good power. Um, I, I think I got a few hole shots on a bone stock. I mean, the motor was completely stock in 2004 at the very beginning of Supercross. I may have had a pipe, a couple little different jetting um, issues at that time, but everything else was completely stock. And, uh, you know, I started, it took me a little while to get going in, in that early 2004 season. And then uh, as soon as the West Coast stopped uh, and went moved to the East Coast, I actually flew after the San Francisco uh, Supercross. Um, two days later, I flew to Australia to race their series up there. Um, and, uh, you know, while I was in Australia living there for about eight or nine weeks, um, Stacy Waterhouse, he was the, the uh, team manager for, which is now the Geico Honda team. Uh, back then it was the, the factory connection Honda team. Um, yeah. he was looking for a rider. Um, and, um, you know, they were looking at it, obviously a few different riders and, um, Brandon and I were both on the phone trying to get the ride. Uh, Brandon's nickname nickname is the agent, uh, by chance, if you didn't know. Um, a lot of people oh, follow. Of course, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, uh, got on that team, and uh, my first race back in the States was the Dallas round, and I, I believe I finished third on their bike. Uh, but that was that was an amazing year uh, riding for that team. Um, I had quite a few, you know, decent races with him. Um, unfortunately, it only lasted one year. I was hoping it was going to last more because I felt at the end of 2004, I felt really, really good about trying to win a, uh, uh, 250F title, uh, that next year in Supercross. Um, but, uh, uh, had a 2005 where you, you did stay on the, 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 the Honda 250F and, uh, you rode East coast that year. Yeah, I did in 2005. Um, 2005 was probably a year I'd actually really like to forget. I didn't have fun at all. Um, I was on a different team. I wasn't on the Texas connection team. My bike wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't good whatsoever. Um, that was really a, a terrible year for me. I actually only raced Supercross, didn't race any nationals, um, uh, mainly because of uh, the bike that I was on. I, I was not happy with the bike. I felt very, very uncomfortable, very unsafe. Um, but anyways, uh, so, uh, I actually, I got a, uh, at the end of 2005, I signed a contract with, uh, American Suzuki again to do, um, in 2006 to do arena cross and, uh, the East coast, uh, at that time, the lights class, uh, with the rockstar, 
uh, Rockstar America Suzuki team. Um, okay, so you're your teammates with J Law at this point. Or no, that's no, seven. We weren't actually teammates because it was funny. I was just I went back to California a couple weeks ago, and I was down at Bill's Pipes talking to Bill and Jeff and Brandon, and we were talking about that time period. And um, they had Bill's Pipes had obviously a rock star deal, and it was all through American Suzuki at that time. And yeah. I had my own deal. I wasn't using Bill's Pipes um, at that time. I was using Pro Circuit stuff. Um, and uh, Jay Law was on the Bill Pike team. Uh, I believe Sean Hamlin was on there. Ryan Mills. Um, but it was all under... Mike Brown, who really fit in with those guys. <laughs> yeah, Mike Brown, exactly. Um, <laughs> it was all really under the same umbrella. Just, you know, uh, Tyler Evans was, was under the Rockstar banner as well. Uh, but he was doing his own thing as well. So um, that was kind of a unique time... Uh, in that time period for for Bill Pipes, myself, Tyler Evans, Rockstar, obviously that was the first experience Rockstar had in, in uh, motocross at that point in time. Uh, uh, so anyways, yeah, I, I raced for them and I did arena cross, uh, again, going back and forth between the 250 two-stroke and, you know, 450 in arena cross was, uh, at that time, you know, Ricky Carmichael, he was... Chad Reed, Bubba Stewart, they were all going back and forth. They didn't know which one was better, and obviously everyone knows now the four strokes much better. Um, but that was just a very unique time in, in motor, motocross history. Um, and I don't even know if there will be another uh, period in time like that in motor history again when there's such a unique change in the sport, uh, moving from a two-stroke to a four-stroke. Uh, it's really cool to be a part of. Um, if you were to purchase uh, a bike now, if you are like, if you didn't work as much as you do, uh, you were to go purchase a bike, uh, would you go two stroke or four stroke, or what would you probably do, or if if you had a choice of brand? Well, you know that's a that's a tough question. I don't know what since I haven't rode in about four years. I don't know what I ride. I do plan on going to Loretta Lynch here in a few years um, and racing. I I would love to win a title. And at that point in time, I don't know what bike I would like to get. Um, I, I could tell you what bike I would like to ride would be a KTM 350. Um, I raced for KTM in Australia for a little bit while I was there. Um, obviously, they didn't have that 350 at that time. They just had two strokes. But um, from what I'm hearing, uh, which I do stay in contact with some people in the industry, uh, even though I live out here in West Texas and I'm not directly involved with moto, I, I do... So, like I said, talk to Bones and a few other people. I'm hearing that the the bike that uh, Caroli rides in the GP is his 350 is kind of a mock-up of a uh, 2017 model 350 KTM. I hear it's supposed to be really good, so I would like to ride one of those and see how that is. But 450, I mean, it's a handful. It really is. Um, Oh yeah, like uh, from the times I've been on the one, it's uh, there's there's nowhere on the track, even some of the more wide open tracks, where you actually need that kind of power. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, and and I like the power band of a of a, a smaller bore. Um, obviously, I like the I like more power, uh, like a four fifty, but I like the power band of a smaller bike better than a bigger bike. Uh, you don't you don't necessarily use all the power, especially in Supercross on a four fifty. 
Um, so to answer your question, I would like to ride a KTM 350 if I could. That'll be uh, right up your alley, man. Like kind of a cross section between the two, uh, enough power to get you over the jumps because I'm sure you're not a stout 175 anymore, uh, and you're a taller guy, more leverage, but uh, and maybe not like not screaming as much as you would a 250F. Exactly, exactly. It would be right in the middle. I think it's right up my alley. Um, and you know, we'll have to wait and see. I, I may have to get one of those and race in that Loretta's here in a few years. So um, at the end of 2007, uh, that's that's where your professional results uh, come to a halt as far as uh, AMA Supercross and motocross events go on. Uh, what else did you do as far as racing went? Uh, and uh, did you try and mount any comebacks uh, in, in those years? Or like, did you move into any type of testing roles or anything like that? Um, I have tested after, let's see, after 2007. Um, my last professional supercross was i believe in indianapolis um uh, i crashed in the first turn and and broke a bunch of ribs and i you know i was 32 at that time and i just i just had enough i was burning out uh, the industry itself was changing a little bit getting a little bit more political I mean, you know i was going to very very young riders um so i kind of got burned out but anyways i was uh i had some testing gigs with uh, with Bob a little bit, I do some stuff with him on the side, and, and uh, you know, at that time, the, the Fax Connects and Honda team, we did a little bit of things uh, with them, uh, and then uh, I actually had uh, a couple Honda 250Fs that I had in the garage, and I would do local races just for fun, you know. Um, I actually did a couple of those Glen Helen six-hour races, 12-hour races. I did one Glen Helen 24-hour race, which is very, very cool. Um, a lot harder than what I thought it was going to be. Um, and I actually, you know, once I uh, moved back to California here, uh, in a few years, I would like to probably get into some of that stuff again. Uh, I'm 39 right now, so uh, I still got a few good years left in me at the at the local level. So um, but that's about it in 2007. Um, I didn't race any nationals that year. Uh like I said, I was just kind of burnt out, and, and uh, you know, I did my thing for a good 12, 13 years or whatever, and, and uh, couldn't have had a better time, I can tell you that. No, it really sounds like uh, like you, you you raced at a fun time in the series. Like uh, uh, they say that uh, Carmichael kind of took the fun out of it a little bit with all the training and stuff like that. But uh, even even he was part part of that like really fun year like years. You had the terra firmas, all the videos. Your your Denny Denny Stevensons of the world. Uh, you're hitting your arena crosses, but Buddy Antonez, uh, Jeff Emig. Those are like. The, the, the real characters of the last 20 years and, and you're right in the, the mix of all that man uh, I've got to imagine you've got a lot of found memories uh, from all of those years and, and uh, you can look back on, on them pretty much constantly oh absolutely I'm, I'm always uh, thinking about uh, the memories that I've had in the sport and, and I like I said I still keep in contact with people and I, I try to watch uh, the races as much as I can um, and you know I I absolutely respect at any level any human that rides a dirt bike because it's it's so the mental part of it, the physical part of it. Um, you know, you, you and I both know it's it's very difficult. It's probably one of the hardest things that you would ever do. Um, and from from the 
beginners to the kids to the top level guys. I mean, I just respect anyone who throws a leg over a motorcycle um, on that level, and it's it's uh, it's absolutely just amazing. It's an amazing feeling to ride a dirt bike. That's for sure. Yeah, well, as far as like the the mental and physical exertion of the sport, show me a sport where. Uh, for 35 minutes plus two or even 20 laps in a row, uh, you've got all, both hands, both feet going nonstop as if you're playing drums in a, in a punk band, as well as you've got a heart rate of about a buck 90. Uh, you're hot and sweaty and you happen to be str- uh, holding on to a rocket ship uh, that probably most likely heavier than you. So like all of those things at the same time, uh, mixed in there with your, you're also wearing about 20 pounds of, of, of heavy gear. Yeah, absolutely. Motocross is definitely one of the most, if not the most difficult sport on the planet. Um, for all the reasons you just mentioned. Uh, uh, but I still to this day have not met one person that has thrown a leg over a motorcycle that has quit. They absolutely, every person that I've ever met loves it. Whether you're a female, a male, a kid, uh, you know, an older man or whatever, everyone just loves it and they get addicted to it. And once it's in your blood, it's in your blood. You can't get rid of it. And like I said, I haven't rode in four years, but uh, it's still definitely embedded in my blood. And I can't wait to get back on a bike uh, as soon as I can. That's for sure. Absolutely. Like, well, with guys like uh, the last interview I did was with Todd DeHoop, uh, the 1988 uh, championship or championship winner on the East Coast. And right now, as we speak, he's getting himself ready to uh, to enter himself at the Loretta Lynn National. He's going to do some area qualifiers and, uh, uh, and and put himself in the dance. Can't wait to hear about uh, you doing the same for yourself. Dude, that is, that is super cool. I'm glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Todd. Uh, the last time uh, that I raced against Todd, uh, which when I was coming through, I, he was towards the end of his career, but uh, I went to, uh, I was coaching a kid named Mike McDade, Mike McDade and uh, I was in New York with him, and we went to the Unadilla National, I believe it was in 2010, uh, and I they had a YZ250 there for me, and at that time they had a, a race, in between the pro motos, yeah, obviously I was already retired by then, but they had this, uh, like an old um, Jimmy Weinert was there, Todd DeHoop was there. There was, I mean, there was probably 20 guys that used to race moto. Um, and we, I, I believe we did two or three laps. And anyways, Todd, I got a good start, and Todd came in underneath me, and he completely tried to, I don't know if he tried, but he almost cleaned me out. I mean, <laughs> but that's the type of rider he was. He was not scared at any time, wide open, ball to the wall type of rider. Um, not about respect for him. He, he did a lot in his day, and, and uh, I'm glad to, to see him uh, going to race Loretta Lynn. That's really, really cool. Yeah, right on. Actually, uh, we've had Mike McDade on the show. Great guy, uh, and I think he's doing a uh, building up a couple of bikes right now. Uh, I think he's 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 done for the year as far as arena cross goes. He's working with Dunlop Tire, uh, doing distribution and stuff like that. But uh, still active in the sport, Mike McDade. Um, over your long career, um, what's the most like podunk arena cross that you ever attended, or a race that you were like, oh yeah, it's going to be sweet and. and it just turned out to be uh, not ran to such a professional level. 
You know, I've been to quite a few of those. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't name just one in particular, um, but I've been to quite a few of them, you know, as a, as a young man and as a privateer, uh, and I'm not the only one, anyone really uh, doing the same thing I did back in the day, is, is you're chasing, you know, the paycheck. So, um, you know, you could be racing on a Wednesday night somewhere in uh, Central California, Northern California, in the middle of nowhere in Nevada. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time on the East Coast when I was younger, but, um, you know, when I did uh, coach Mike McDade uh, for uh, a summer or whatever in 2010, he, we went to a bunch of lo- local stuff chasing, you know, chasing money. And uh, there was a lot of podunk. Oh, man, a lot. <laughs> I'll never forget. We were at, I believe it was Pennsylvania, and there was a night race. And uh, they had a jump show. And I don't know if you have ever seen Mike Day throw a whip, but that guy can throw and just a super sick, nasty whip. And I'll never forget yes, it. I, we were at this podunk fairground race, and I was at the face of the jump watching him go off the face, and he had his butt completely... I mean, I could see the front number plate, and I was behind him. And uh, anyway, that, that was that was super cool. Pulled on Saturday, so. <laughs> there you go, man. Well, uh, I thank you so much for uh, giving me uh, over an hour and uh, thirty minutes of content tonight. Uh, it's been amazing to go down memory lane with you, and uh, I know this is only scratching the surface of the type of stories that you've got. Uh, what say you? We uh, we reconvene in a, in a couple of week time. Uh, get uh, Brandon on the phone and uh, head down memory lane once again. Because uh, although like th- this is an all encompassing uh, interview, it's the uh, the quintessential. Uh, Greg Chanel interview, but uh, I know there's more to it, and uh, I just thank you so much for giving me some time, giving me your evening, uh, and uh, it's been it's been awesome. Yeah, you know, I would love to uh, get together with you and Brad in here in a, in a few weeks and, and do an interview together, and, and uh, you know, I appreciate the time that you've taken to uh, interview me, and um, you know, taking a, a lap around memory lane. It was, uh, it was very cool, man. I appreciate it. Hey, and I appreciate you, my friend. Uh, best, uh, best, all the best going forward, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Appreciate it. Okay, sounds good, man. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.